0: Welcome to, this is my fourth attempt at doing this intro, welcome to the Break Magazine podcast, the secret podcast, this is the second second season that I am running, uh, episode one, and today's episode is all about Dakar, now it's the last Dakar podcast we're going to do until Dakar next year. Uh, But we kind of wanted to finish off all the coverage that we had of the race by digging into some of the more complex topics. So today's guest, Chris Evans, has worked within the organization and around Rally Raid for a really long time and has an incredibly in-depth knowledge and a lot of personal relationships with people involved in the race. And he was able to provide some fantastic insight that was honest and open and insightful and really, really carefully put together and It answered a lot of the questions that I think us as fans and so on have had about some of the goings on, some of the stranger things that happened in this year's race and in previous year's races. Um, And yeah, it made for a really enjoyable chat. It's quite long. There's no doubt we talked for a really long time about a bunch of complex topics, uh, including at the end, the company he that runs outside of Rally Raid uh but yeah along the way there's some yeah some fantastic answers to some fantastic questions and hopefully that gives all of us kind of a bit more closure on the race that's just happened um as well if you're not massively into Dakar I think it can probably still be really interesting for you because it gives you a bit more insight into the complexity of how the race is run and and why it's such a such a technical challenge and why some of the decisions such as it moving countries happen um yeah i hope you enjoy it and if you do great and if not i'm sorry (laughs) i don't really know what else to say uh yeah without further ado i leave you with the conversation between myself and chris evans fantastic so chris firstly welcome to the podcast um it is a pleasure to have you here um Before we ask you any complicated questions about Dakar, um, I'd kind of like to give a little bit of background about your role in the race and your role in motorsport in general. So um, how long have you been involved in Dakar? I think my dad said you were there on his first one.
1: Yeah, so so I think I started, my first rally raid was in 1995 and I went to sweep on a parallel raid with the Rally Tunisie. And uh, that was run by Cyril Never, obviously five times Dakar winner. And uh, when he realized I was English I and mean, he didn't know me, I was just, you know, friend of a friend kind of thing. He said, well, I've got better things for you to do. So I started working for Rally Tunisie. And then ASO, who run the Dakar, sent a spy to Rally Tunisie. And uh, they decided they need somebody like me. So they contacted me. And then, so I think my first, daca was in 97 and i did uh, i did the press releases uh the motorcycle press releases on the daca that's how it started so you, you said
0: they sent a spy was that just to see how well the race was run then or
1: yeah a lot of rallies do that i mean sometimes they're they're invited or, or they register or sometimes they're a little bit undercover and they see what other rallies are doing or, or you know what's good what's bad kind of thing
0: Wow, okay, that's kind of a level of subversion that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Well,
1: they are French, after all.
0: <laughs> wow, I think that's probably going to set the tone for a lot of these uh, these questions. So, um, obviously, you've been around Dakar for quite a long time now, so what are the, the various roles beyond the the press role that you've had in that race? Uh, right, so the
1: with the press role that came doing the briefing, which, as you know, having been on Dakar, is a, a big part of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... In, I think, about 2000, I started working as press attaché for uh, the KTM team. Yeah. Okay. And then uh Cilles Dupre arrived, I would say, in 2002. And I already knew him, and I was already working for him as well, because what happened in, in 2000, he went... um he went on the Dakar on an XR400, and I think he finished 14th. Yep, pretty good on a... <laughs> on an XR400, yeah. And uh, so then he got contacted by a lot, of, um, a lot of factory teams, and he used to fix my bike. He worked in a bike shop in Paris, and I always used to take my bike to him. And so one time I took my bike in, and he said, oh, Chris, are you going on the Dakar? Yeah, I should think so. And he said, oh, I want you to be my manager. And I said, well, Cyril, well, you know, you've got an XR 400, and you've never done the DACA before, and maybe only the top three riders have anybody looking after them. Um, and he said, no, 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 I have to, This is my one chance. I have to put everything to my, you know, in my favour. I'll do your bike for free for a year. So I said, All right. <laughs> you know, so I was still working for. Um, I think I was still working for ASO, yeah. And I was because I was also correspondent for ASO. I was working for KTM. And then I was doing an under the carpet um, press release and helping out Cyril. And then Cyril got integrated into the KTM team. And he kind of, when it started to be war between him and Mark Comer, uh, although from the exterior, it looked like one team. In fact, it was kind of separated into two teams. So you had a team manager from KTM and then you had somebody there for Mark Comer. I think he used uh, Geordie Arcarons and I was there for Cyril. So that's how it, and I did that for 15 years for, for Cyril until he stopped race, racing bikes.
0: So that kind of leads quite nicely into my, my next question, really. Um, my my kind of memory of you on Dakar early on was you being that team manager role when, when you look back at the race, how it was then between Mark and Cyril, and it was always pretty much for a long time, 10 years, just a battle between those two. When you look yeah. at that era versus how it is now, what do you see as the biggest changes in developments, And what do you make of the tactics of Dakar now versus then?
1: Well, I think the, the thing you have to remember... When, as you say, they they shared the wins for 10 years and it was five each, as far as I remember, yeah, in the end. Um, so they were really, those two, the only people who were getting paid proper money, enough money to allow them to just just do that, just train and prepare for the DACA. Everybody else was um, more or less part-time, yeah? Uh, so now you have 20 professional riders, spread across uh, five teams. Uh, So what's really changed is when it was Mark and Cyril, although they never talked to each other, obviously if you've got two riders uh, in with a chance, they kind of mark each other.
2: Mm.
1: You know, and they were, you know, one of them had a good day one day. You know, as long as they stayed close to each other, uh, one of them was going to win, you know. And so I think the speeds... Although they were riding big bikes at the time, uh, the speeds were were lower and the, and the risks they were taking were much lower. I mean, Cyril always said to me he never had the impression that he was taking excessive risks. And now, if you've got a factory team with five riders, if they all go flat out from beginning to end from the team point of view, you've got a pretty ch- good chance that one of them all will make it, you know. And, and if everybody's going flat out, you've got no choice but to go flat
0: out. Yeah, so almost uh, the the tactical side of it because there's so many people has been thrown out the window a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think this tactical thing, I mean, I was reading a little bit, you know, when I was out there this year about people talking about tactics with Honda and, and were KTM having the right tactic and, you know, it looked like the Honda riders were riding two together at the front you know I think it's vastly vastly exaggerated the the tactic thing I think everybody likes to sit at home going oh they're doing this they're doing that basically you have to remember that when the riders are out on the special they've got no communication with each other all they can see to help them know where the others might be you've got the 15 minute neutralisation for the refuelling so they can if they start first they can count the time that the other Riders come in and and try and work out whether they've gained time on them. They can look at dust trails. Mm. I remember uh, Cyril used to judge how fast Mark Comer was going in the sand. He'd imagine Cyril start behind Mark Comer. He would see where Comer was landing off the jumps. Okay. (laughs) And seeing how far his wheel track was. And if he was landing further off the jump than Comer then he reckoned he was gaining time on (laughs) it. Okay, yeah. So do you see what I mean? mean, Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's quite... Chaotic's not the right word, but really all you can do... I mean, look, there's tactics in the prologue, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, for example, this year, um, the prologue, there was no choosing your start time for the first stage. So what do you do? Do you go flat out and hope that somebody comes... faster than you or do you go slowly it's interesting you had Brabeck yeah he went flat out and he won the stage and that very possibly cost him the victory yeah yeah. yeah. or you had Sam Sunderland I think he finished 26 mm-hmm. uh, on the prologue and he that evening he was really depressed about it you know he thought he'd made a terrible miscalculation and that he was going to start 26 and and the race was lost for him whereas Brabeck was like pretty you know he'd put his mark on the rally. I won it last year. I won the prologue, you know, and, and, you yeah, guys yeah. All, and in actual fact, it, it, it turned out the other way. Yeah, 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 for
0: sure. Well, it was quite interesting with brabeck's whole attitude across the, the race right from the start was very much, uh, seemed like from the outside, he came in kind of swinging his ego a little bit. Like it was his, it, you know, it was a fight between him and Toby. That's what he made it sound like. Yeah. Um, which clearly is not the case. Um, So along along those same lines as well, Honda a few years ago got into trouble a couple of years in a row for bending the rules. And when you were team manager with Mark and Cyril, there was a few years where the difference between them was just the rule book. Basically, there were incidents, Mark's tire where he changed one in the stage and he got found out. And the incident, I remember Cyril maybe going back for some gloves and someone called him on it for some rules. Those kind of things have got a history in Dakar. Now the issue with Bereda this year, where he missed the neutral fuel zone. And then immediately there was accusations from the KTM team and people, including myself, were sat at home going, wow, this is either the dumbest thing we've ever seen anyone do. And he's hit his head really hard or, There's something way more kind of untoward going on here and people are trying to bend the rules in their advantage. From your point of view, as someone that has been on the inside of these things, do you think that is Honda trying to gain an advantage or do you think Bereda's Bereda and he hit his head hard and he
1: did something dumb?
0: No, I think, uh,
1: I mean, Honda have been traditionally badly managed since the start. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Everybody would agree with that. I think it's got better. I think it's interesting if you look at Brader, how he function and uh, not Breda, Brabic, how he functions now. He's done a very similar thing to what Mark and Seal did back in the day. Imagine you've got a team of five riders and a and a and a team manager who's, you know, got a lot to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Basically, you can't correctly look after five riders. So you saw Brabock last year, he came with Johnny Campbell. Mm-hmm. You know, multi-Baja winner and Dakar competitor, I think he finished eighth or something like that. And he created his little micro-bubble within the team, you know. I would have been very surprised if Ruben Farrier, who's the manager of Honda and who I used to be team manager of when he was Cyril's water carrier. I'd be very surprised if he has much direct contact with with Brabick. Okay, yeah. I'm wrecking, you know, you mentioned the stress those guys are under. They just need to, and a lot of media requests, basically they have to filter all that out. And so I think Johnny Campbell is there to do that. And Johnny Campbell's got his own mechanic now with Honda. So uh, I think the 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 thing where you're talking about is where Honda went off and refueled in a... In a during a cp i think a yeah of the board across
0: the and country. and the incident with Benavides where there was quite clearly instructions on where to go taped to his fuel tank in almost an a4 sheet of paper of
1: yeah okay well i think those are mistakes huh
0: <laughs> yeah okay
1: yeah i just i think it's just bad management mm-hmm. you know, i think uh but i remember the night uh, the briefing before the incident, where they went off to refuel between the board when, on the border crossing, and I think they must misunderstood the briefing, or okay. didn't yeah. come. Yeah. All right. The thing with the tape, you know, you know, everybody puts a bit of tape on their on their yeah, side yeah, their yeah, yeah. and I think they just misunderstood. I mean, when I was team manager, I used to have my nose buried in that rule book yeah. yeah and that was kind of where the
0: question came from originally is why if these are mistakes why are honda making them the rule books there it's very clear so well, it's,
1: it's not that i mean interestingly this year my job uh i was competitor relations for motorcycles yeah mm-hmm. so i'm employed by the organizers to work with the federation so the idea is if you have a rider or a team manager is unsure about the rules they come to me mm-hmm and either I can give them the answer or I can go to the race director and, and ask for clarification. So in actual fact, the rules are never that clear. And there's always new things coming up that people don't understand. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you know, they have those um, supplements to the rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every day they're bunging out supplements to try and catch up with the changes. Yeah. Uh, the things that people never thought of. So to say the rules are clear... I think it's not quite true, actually, and um, and it's interesting, uh, my contact with the team managers this year, they're all super nervous about putting a foot wrong, and so they're ringing me all day long okay. to try and get clarification. clarification. Yep. So, so, yeah, I think Honda, yeah, I think the trouble with Honda is they came, they wanted to win too quickly, you know, so they put a lot of pressure on their management, and You know, already there's a lot of pressure on the deck. You don't need anybody from Japan jumping up and down the telephone. You know, so, yeah, bad management. But I think they've got a super difficult job, the team managers, because they're trying to impose tactics. Imagine on five riders, all who want to win. Yes, there's a limit. You know, like, come back to Bereda. Did Bereda sacrifice himself to open the track for Brabic and Benavides? i think it's
0: unimaginable i i think it is from berada's point of view because he hasn't ever shown himself as a person that's quite happy to be a number two rider he quite mm. clearly still wants to be there do you know you don't ride the way he rode this year if you're happy to take number two no and so
1: and, and, and also he was fourth overall he could have easily finished on the podium which would have been his first podium finish <laughs> which is mental which is mental seeing is he's the fourth of all the people who've won stages, he's the fourth winningest stage rider, and he's never won one, you know. So, the other thing, if it was a tactic, you know, you can come into the refueling, and you now with the GPS control your time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you come in, you've got 15 minutes, and in that time, you refuel, and then you're it's your responsibility to go out at the right time. So, if it was my tactic, and I would have. You know, if Bereda really wanted to open the piece for the others, he would have come in, refueled and left straight away.
0: Yeah. And,
1: and just taken
0: the penalty. It, yeah, taken yeah.
1: the penalty and then he'd have had enough fuel to open the stage for Brabic and, and Benavid, even if that's possible. I mean, would you really want Bereda opening the stage for you?
0: Well, it's 50-50. He's either going to be the fastest
1: guy and win from the front
0: or he's going to just ride off into the desert.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I'd, I think it was just a mistake. Now, why Bereda made that mistake... Could be pressure. He could have just lost it a bit. He could have hit his head, but it was two days ago he hit his head. You know. Mm. I don't know. I have my own theory, but I don't. I really want to say it.
0: Fair enough. (laughs) <laughs> because i think also i you you touched on it there with the pressure thing and it's not something we see that often you don't know normally when people make pressure mistakes it's they have a bad day on the bike but that has got to people in dakar in the past there's quite that famous incident with nanny roma where he rode down the wrong the wrong valley and had a breakdown and yeah. went fetal and and so i suppose that that's kind of something from the outside that's quite hard to imagine being a pro rider in that position where your kind of career and your money and everything depends on you making all the right decisions for two weeks um one of the other things you touched on there a little bit was back in the day they split the ktm team you had two managers and eventually it almost became two teams with different sets of sponsors and so on
1: well it was yes yeah, the one year it was completely separate teams uh that we run ourselves and we found the money ourselves to do it yeah and wow. KTM just <laughs> didn't put the money in at all
0: wow Okay, so with Honda now, like with KTM, they seem to have arrived at this point of like a harmonious team where everybody's friends, even though they're racing together, they seem to get on really well. I don't know how they do it. They have four riders fighting for the win, really, that are, or three riders who are all really chummy on the outside. But with Honda, it doesn't seem like that. You, you touched on it where Johnny Campbell and Kendall Norman are kind of Ricky's team, and he seems to have let nacho in a little bit they share their camper they seem to be good friends but a few years ago with the honda team there were rumors that bereda was creating a split in the team with rodrigue and there was this management issue going on do you see the honda team going that way do you see bereda still having a job there how do you think this kind of situation happens now that there's four guys in the honda team that are clearly capable of
1: winning stages winning the race yeah i think uh... I think Bereda, interestingly, you know, when he, Bereda, was the man on which everything was focused in Honda, he didn't ride as well as he, he's riding now.
2: Mm.
1: So I think the pressure was definitely counterproductive for him, and he seems a much more relaxed individual now than he was previously. Uh, the Nacho thing is relatively recent, isn't it? I mean, you know, he was being traditionally kind of badly treated as like he was mm. like the, you know the apparently his salary is not that good compared with the others and he's not as well considered or that was before this DACA you know
2: mm.
1: um, ricky Brabick has that you know he's got that focus and that confidence about what he's doing that makes him look like a leader you know yeah obviously you know and as the first Honda rider in recent history to win it, he must be getting, you know, he must be a god round at at Honda. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then you've got Kevin Benavides, who again, you know, is relatively recently that he's come to prominence as really a a front runner, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, I think... You know, this is always the, these. what people forget. These, they aren't robots, these people. They're all humans, riders and team managers, and, you know, with their own personalities. You know, you talk about KTM. KTM was traditionally uh, the logistics kind of side, of the basic day-to-day stuff, was always run pretty much by the mechanics. Oh, okay, yeah. You know? I mean, like, for example, when I was there, I was just solely concerned with the sporting side of it, the rules and... and and A little bit of tactics in and 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 also just trying to keep Cyril focused, you know, because he could get a little bit carried away with stuff, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and that and his war with, with coma was I think he suffered more from that than coma did, although it was kind of Cyril that was the main protagonist in that antagonist, you know, so yeah, okay, you know, now. Um, KTM it's changed a bit. You know, I mean, like I, you know, the mechanics, you know, the mechanics at KTM, they've been there for years, you know, and they knew what they were doing. I didn't have to tell them what time to pack up their, their tents or, you know, whether they'd finished working or not or when they had to leave. They they managed all that themselves. Uh, now you've got Geordie Adams, who is pretty, you know, he's on the case. He knows what he's doing. Um, you've got mechanics the traditional hardcore mechanics, uh Roland Bruckner and, and uh Schluchy, uh that was like the hardcore and you know they've gone now. So now the 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 shift in control has gone to Geordie Villadams with uh, Alexander René at Hasbana, they're kind of workers are uh, together. Mm-hmm. Uh so the riders within K, I I think it's kind of a happy coincidence, really. You've got um, Sam was out in Dubai for a long time; he couldn't ride, so uh, Toby and uh, went out to Dubai, rode with Sam. Then you've got uh, Daniel Sanders, who's obviously you know Australian. They're all pretty relaxed, you know. I mean, there's a big recruitment drive going on in ex-British colonies, you know, because they, the, the, uh, you know, uh, Ross Branch. Mm-hmm. Sanders, Toby Price, they've got the perfect attitude for rally raid, you know? Yeah, okay, yeah. Compared with the kind of nervous Europeans, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and and the desert, the prerequisite desert experience is already there, I suppose, as well. I think the speed thing is important. You know, when if you come from enduro or motocross in Europe and you get let loose in the desert, you haven't got that speed ability, you know? Mm-hmm. And
0: And I I think you, you, I don't know how much you spoke to David Knight this year, but obviously his, his enduro ability is maybe not as fast as he was, but the the question of how fast his peak level was is, is not in doubt. And yet the thing he said most that he struggled with this year was just getting his head around that speed and how long it was taking him to adjust. And and you saw it a little bit in his results because there's no doubt if you put him in a wet grassy field, he's faster than maybe only three or four riders in the race can go the speed he could go. But in the desert, he's like a 30th place guy getting beaten by people whose technical ability is is nowhere near what his is. So I think you kind of touched on a really interesting point that even for peak-level Enduro riders, we saw it with Antoine Mayo and Alexandra Rene, where maybe that speed was just a bit too much for them to deal with, in, not in terms of ability, but in terms of the process of their brain.
1: Yeah, almost in the cognitive ability to process what's going on, mm. yeah. And if you look at Niter in the sand or on the off piece, he was like running at the beginning at least 30th or something like that. and as soon as he hit a bit of rocky section i mean i, was, I had friends who were riding around with him yeah, yeah who could ride with him in the sand no problem and then as soon as it got a bit rocky they he just went you know and they just go why you know they, they
0: <laughs> then you see what he's about for sure yeah so uh, i one of the other big subjects with dakar that has really interested me in the last couple of years is the transition that they had from south america to saudi you know our, i don't remember exactly how long it is but it had seemed to have the same core team of people running it for a really long time you had etienne levine in charge and then the person that i also know is javier was there for quite a long time and then the saudi thing happened they leave south america it's done saudi comes along there's new money but also the organization changed and with that seems to have been a bunch of other things change what what did you make of that whole process what kind of did it seem like went on there both from that organization change and then the landscape change
1: okay well if you look at the organization change which is you know is very important you know maybe not look like that from the outside but when you're there so you had levine etienne levine who who really came to power do you remember when they did the um the airlift across uh the Niger desert. I
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. That was a long time ago now. <laughs> that was a long yeah. time ago. So Levine was a logistics specialist. Yeah. Who came from the army. And when they had to organize that airlift, he was the man who did it, you know? And so that's how he got the job of boss. Yeah. But the, the handicap for Levine and I, I always got on with him very well is he's never raced a DACA.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: so, you know, whether that makes him competent to run... You know, the basic the race is a logistical problem, isn't it? That's, yeah. You know, so he was very good at that side of it. Um, did he have the credibility to make the riders do stuff they didn't want to do? Or did he really understand what they were up against? It's debatable. I don't think it was a huge problem, but I think the pressure of running that race over... You know, I think there's a limited lifespan for for running that race, you know, Mm -hmm. and the pressure that is involved in it. Uh, Because you talk about the rider under pressure, but the rider, in a way, has only got to worry about himself. (laughs) When the bloke who's running it, uh, you know, he's got, you know, 500 assistance vehicles running around. Even that is a huge problem, you know, let alone the riders who who have become increasingly uh, logistically heavy. Mm Um. So I think and he became less and less visible. I don't know if you, the last time you came on the DACA, you didn't really see him very much,
0: you know. I don't th- I don't the only time I heard of like riders having contact with him was him giving water out to them in the middle of a stage from a helicopter. But like I never saw him and I don't you know he was never at the briefing or or anything.
1: So you know, I think he basically hid himself away, you know, mm. which is not what you want from the boss of the DACA, you know, however competent he was. Yeah. Um so that was a problem, and then you had Xavier Gavori who who again I think was a super competent and a good bloke, again with no race experience mm-hmm. himself. Um and when I think ASO realised that they had to replace Levine because he wasn't fulfilling that the whole function of his job and one of his functions is to be present and visible um so who have they got they've got castera you know i mean that is basically the only the guy is just perfect for that job
0: yeah famous bike rider super competent well-liked
1: finished finished third on the his best place was third he was pet water carrier he won the, Gilles, the last ever Gilles Lallier Classics. There's no question he can ride a motorcycle. Uh, then he ran uh, the French Enduro Championship and the French Cross Country Championship, and he ran the Shark Extreme, which he created. And um, and then he got drafted in as, as the uh, sporting director of ASO, and then he left, you know, and they, go, and they got Mark Comer in. Now, I don't really know much about that, because what happened, in fact is uh, as Etienne Levine became a little bit more complicated to deal with, whereas before I was free to work for all rallies, you know, I worked for the Tunisia Marco, the Silkway, all this, suddenly Levine said, no, if you're working for the DACA, you can only work for us. So when, when Castero went off to set up the Rally du Maroc, he asked me if I wanted to come with him, Knowing that if I did, I would be sacked from ASO, mm-hmm. uh but I also knew that I could work for the Silkway, and I just, you know, look, you know, there's no money in rally rate. You, know? <laughs> you know, it's not a, it's not a financial decision. I just didn't like people telling me where I could work. You know? so <laughs> yeah, I went off to work for Castera and the Silkway, and then you know, bugger me, six months later, Castera rings and goes you're yeah. back on the DACA because I've just been made the boss. You know? Nice. So, yeah. Okay. So, so, so the thing about Castillo, what I want to say about Castillo is a, he's super competent in the job. You know, mm-hmm. the guy can support the levels of pressure that, you know, American presidents have, you know I mean? It's just, yeah. you know? um, plus, you know, he was co-driver in the car. So all this, you know, thing about, they've got cameras in the cars, now. You know, Castillo knew how they cheated, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, So he's just, he understands every aspect of the race. Uh, He has managed to create a a core of people around him that are super loyal to him, Mm -hmm. and he's super loyal to them, uh, and it works extremely well. Uh, So going to, you know, that kind of, I mean, it, it just coincided with the move to Saudi Arabia. Okay, so
0: it wasn't so much of a uh, a divisive thing where Etienne and Xavier left because it was going to Saudi. It was more well, just a...
1: Xavier possibly left because it was going to Saudi.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: But I think he wasn't having a great time anyway. And he, again, had didn't have any race experience himself, which was always a problem for him. Mm-hmm. So, but it was mainly coincidence, you know, and, they, and you know, now who are you going to like for example i don't know if you know but the um the european boss of the silkway uh, fred Lurkham has left about mm-hmm. two weeks okay so who who are they going to get to run that
0: yeah side? <laughs> that's a great question who <laughs> yeah
1: i don't I know no idea i mean the only person i can think of is david Castera. yeah and he's already got the Andrew Lucy rally and the morocco rally which are his own pride things mm-hmm. plus
0: the kind of... it's enough work for a person in a year <laughs>
1: yeah yeah plus is he really going to want to work with the russians you know i don't know and the chinese you
0: know, that's yeah. the big... well i've yeah i think we've both got a little bit of experience there that it, it's not necessarily the easiest uh management position to work between <laughs> those different cultures yeah. so on on that same note obviously saudi arabia has bought about some significant changes in landscape and uh, how the race is from a competitor point of view. Do you, do you think it's a good thing? And what, what do you make of the issue of speed when it, like we talked about Castero a lot there and he's a really experienced bike rider. When he came to the race, uh, originally as the kind of sporting director his job was to set the course as, as far as i understand it exactly, and one of the yeah. biggest changes he made was that the race had a much more bike focused approach with the course there were separate stages for four-wheeled vehicles and two-wheeled vehicles lots of much more technical terrain I think there was even a bit on the TV the first year where he used the dirt bike to do some of the recce because you couldn't get a car there. And yeah. from a rider's perspective, like when I did Dakar, that was one of the things I enjoyed the most were those stages where it, it was amazing. It was technical and you were in places where you probably wouldn't take a car normally or you couldn't take a car, but that seems to have gone because of the Saudi landscape maybe. It's a, always hard to tell from the outside. So what do you make of that change, the speed that's come with it? and the the kind of combining of everything back into one event
1: well look i think the first thing is um you can't invent the landscape that you know it's either there or it's not you know what i mean so obviously the landscape in south america one of the nice things about it was was it's extremely varied
2: Mm uh
1: whereas in saudi arabia it's more similar and they've got some big open spaces so I, the, the, why did they move from South America to Saudi Arabia? I think that's the first thing you have to look at. One of the problems was they were kind of running out of places to go,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know. And 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 when they made the road book in South America, they used to take uh, government archaeologists archeolo- with them. And if ever they dis- so the ASO discovered literally hundreds of archaeological sites that nobody knew about. <laughs> okay. They'd, yeah. So they were talking themselves out of the job, you know, because they'd get there, find some, you know, relic or something, and then the archaeologists say we can't come here anymore, and and so they were their playing field was being gradually reduced in a similar way to it was in in Africa uh, when they were getting squeezed towards the coast by all the problems in 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 Mauritania and Niger. So that was the the one big consideration. I mean, without the terrain, you you're stuffed, you know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the other thing is obviously uh, South America had a huge recession and no money uh, to invite the organisers to come and run their race there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And although apparently from an economic point of view it was made total sense to invite ASO to come to their countries, politically it was unacceptable because, you know, you've got huge recession and yet you're paying people to come and run a race. So yeah. so th- those two things happen pretty much at the same time. So they had to go somewhere else and they looked at places like Namibia apparently and, and even Australia. Uh, but Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states in general have a you know it's perfect terrain for running yeah, around. big and plus, empty. <laughs> big and empty and plus they've got a bit of money, you know. Mm-hmm. So Then, when obviously when Castero made the first route, he was in a bit of a hurry, mm-hmm. so he couldn't slow it down and go in. You know, often the riders say, well, Look, we're riding along and we can see dunes to our left and dunes to our right. Why aren't we going in there? You know, um, and I think probably the, one of the reasons was because they didn't have enough time to go in there. You know, mm-hmm. for the first year, the second year, uh, they didn't start making the road book till September because of covid okay
0: so making those changes that they'd planned to make suddenly become super difficult
1: i just don't think they've had the time to do it Mm. you know i mean they made the road book on google earth and then went to verify it, and they had to do it in one go you know
0: yeah okay well that's a again like you talk about a massive logistical issue that they they have there
1: yeah so so i think you know that obviously castara is fully aware of it i mean One of the problems is speed isn't necessarily the most dangerous factor on the Dakar, as you know. know, Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the case of uh, Paolo, it it was. But most accidents don't happen flat out. No, it's
0: it's when speed meets tricky terrain that you have the, the problem, yeah. When, exactly. when either you 've been at speed for a long time and your brain is kind of adjusted a little bit wrong or something happens quickly or yeah the the terrain doesn 't like yeah run the way that you expect it to, if that makes sense
1: yeah, yeah totally so that 's one problem i mean on a few days on the on the deck of this year, they had uh, flat rocks coming off dunes buried in the sand mm-hmm. you know you can 't go into the desert and and take out all the flat rocks you no know? you can't no um the other problem they've got is uh because uh the logistics now i mean you wouldn't believe it if you came to saudi arabia that the, the infrastructure on the bivouacs is just phenomenal
0: and so why has that changed because one of the things that was seemed like a big leap from the outside when they went to south america is that they had a road network to work with so the things yeah. they could do and the way they could organise the race and the vehicles you could take, motorhomes and so on, all of these things became possible that before were impossible because if you couldn't drive through the dunes, you just couldn't go. That changed in South America quite a lot to having this road network. So how has that changed now that they're in Saudi?
2: Well,
1: the thing is, see, in, in, in Africa, we used to lose a lot of planes, yeah? Mm-hmm. And so you're, the route, you made the route, the, the making of the route was restricted by the where the airstrips were,
2: mm-hmm.
1: okay? In South America, the organizers moved a lot by bus, so that gave them a lot more freedom uh, to put the bivouacs where they wanted them. And now we've gone back to a lot of air transport. Um, so again, you're back to the thing, you can only go where there's an airstrip.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, why they've gone for such a huge, you know, such a, I mean, you you know, the, it looks like a MotoGP pad, you know, the, the, okay yeah i had an amazing dinner with a guy who who's responsible a german guy who's responsible for setting up the big yeah and when he's not doing that he he used to be tour manager for madonna okay yeah so logistics are his game as well yeah and and now he works for k-pop bands yep and so again you know so he said that the DACA for him was relatively easy. <laughs> Apparently, when they when Madonna went on tour, they had to. Uh, her hotel rooms were furnished by her own furniture, yeah? so they had to move and the room had to be exactly the same size. They just used to smash up hotel rooms and rebuild them so it was the same dimension. As that is
0: this. literally the most mental thing I think I've ever heard of.
1: So for him, you know, I suppose setting up a bivvy. But interesting, I think he told me that they have four different bivouacs, yeah? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: He said they set up five bivouacs that were never used. Uh, So, and I'm guessing, I don't know exactly the financial details, but I'm guessing all this is paid for by the Saudis. That would make sense. (laughs) So, and I think the Saudis want it to look good, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, so whether it's a good thing for the race you know i like to you know i like a bit of comfort me so like for example we sleep in um in porter cabins yeah yeah most of the organizers and so we have i don't know 16 porter cabins that get driven from bivouac to bivouac and mm-hmm. there's a problem and that's great you know yeah, uh-huh. yeah okay it's it's cold <laughs>
0: it's really cold. Yeah. well I it's the desert which i think uh yeah, from the outside, it was a little bit of a surprise as well. A few of the guys I know that went last year were really surprised by how cold it was in the north. But it's a desert, it's winter, they're cold. It
1: reminds me of when we arrived in Libya when we, after that airlift and it was like minus five at night. Mm-hmm. just didn't expect it. This time, I mean, it's interesting, last year I really got cold. Yeah? And this year I took a lot more clothes with me. And then I noticed the organisers. You know, the first time I went in my clothing allocation was a woolly hat. Mm I'm going, well, I need a woolly hat for you. Chucks it away. And uh, yeah, you need a woolly hat. So, So
0: yeah. One of the things that that also came out a lot this year was that, I think there was a a really big transition in the way the bikes were designed when it went to South America, Africa, the bikes were big and long and stiff and really good at going in a straight line. And they, especially KTM made a big progression in one direction. But I remember in 2015, I think you were manager for Yamaha team manager. Is that right? Yeah. And yeah. that was a year when they had a really bad bike. They turned up and the fuel yeah. tank was all in the back and every like some of the quickest Dakar riders were struggling to get top 15. Yeah. And it seems a little bit like maybe KTM's bike isn't quite where they want it. There was a few of the team riders moaning about that. Leia was vocal about it a little bit. Quintanilla was super vocal that he was uncomfortable and Yamaha clearly got a problem. None of them finished their bike. They looked uncomfortable. The, guys van beveren had a couple of good stages but in general said that he didn't seem that comfortable riding at those speeds so what do you think's going on with the yamaha team and do you think there is a little bit of a thing that ktm have got to fix with their bike or was it much more even than it looked
1: well if we start with yamaha first because that's the easiest one (laughs) Uh, you know yamaha is still it's not a full factory effort whatever they're telling us Mm -hmm. Um, bike is made in france yeah yeah and 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 basically
0: the same bike it's been for a while
1: well it's the the bike the basis of the bike and the chassis is 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 a yz 450 yeah or a wr you know Mm -hmm. but more yz than wr but but uh, i think the days of making a competitive rally bike out of a standard motocrosser is is long gone Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know and and basically the problem is It's always been, and you hinted at it with their, you know, the first, when when we went there, they had this huge fuel tank on the rear. Uh, But I think in total there were five different fuel tanks on the bike. Okay. (laughs) So that's five connectors and uh, five fuel pumps. And and I remember Cyril ran out of petrol uh, on one of the stages because, you know, the dry brake on the fuel line hadn't been pressed home on one of the fuel tanks. Mm Mm-hmm. And he didn't realize it, uh, but you also have to realize the mechanics you know we were sitting opposite KTM at six o'clock in the evening KTM mechanics they put the put the the cover on the bike, and that 's finished for them. you know what I mean we were working until Cyril got up to go and ride the bike mm. so inevitably you know so if you have mechanics not sleeping, they're going to make a mistake
0: you know? yeah so
1: there's the complexity of the bike, uh, the base the problem with the chassis isn't made for rally raid. You can't put the fuel tanks really where you want. I think every year they've made progress, but every year the other guys are making progress as well. And plus the engine, uh, which might have... I mean, you know, that, I think you could generally say that the WR450 engine, of all the standard enduro motocross bikes, is probably one of the strongest, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know... KTM and and Hero and Honda they have specific engines you know and specific chassis and uh, so I think Yamaha until really they they decide to make a bike from the ground up made for rally they're gonna be struggling.
0: Do you think do you think what happened this year will force them to start to look at that or are Yamaha Japan just not really that interested? <laughs>
1: You know, the thing is that the Yamaha team comes from Jean-Claude Olivier, who was the, you know, the emblematic boss of, of Yamaha France and really had a huge impact on the, here comes the dog. Uh, <laughs> a, hello. Who had a huge impact on 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 uh, on, 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 on that, and, and but also recruited the people that are currently running the team. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they've got four managers at Yamaha. At the they've got uh, Kalowski, Josie Delois, Marc Bourgeois, who comes from Enduro, and, uh, and they've got uh, Jordi Arcones, Yeah, and that's way too many people making decisions. Yeah. So that's one problem. The other problem is, uh, I don't know if Yamaha Japan are really interested. Eric Desen, who runs Yamaha Europe, he's super interested for sure. it's
0: a big investment you know Mm. well quite you know when honda came there was the rumors that their budget for five years was 25 million euros or something like that you know it's uh and they quite clearly have put a monumental amount into that bike it's a very special bike you only have to have a little peek around it to see that yeah there's some there's some fantastic japanese level engineering going on there
1: yeah, i mean there's you know the 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 size stand is made of carbon fiber
0: yeah <laughs> yeah, and the <laughs> cases look like they're all machined and the fuel tanks yeah. are carbon and you know there's i mean it's it's as h r c as a bike can get from the outside at least
1: you know the engines and i i know that um the engine casings on the rally bikes are just you know they use thicker metal mm-hmm. you know uh k t m use um pensky is it pensky i think it's called pistons? Uh, pan-
0: pankle yeah
1: pankle, pankle yeah, yeah which, you know, it costs a resilience
0: you know. And, yeah, and... for the customer bike, I, I've been rebuilding my 2015 and the customer bike to buy a piston is 3,000 euros for a piston when a normal yeah. enduro bike piston is 150,
1: maybe. Yeah.
2: So. so
1: unless you're putting that kind of investment into it,
2: mm-hmm.
1: whether Yamaha, I hope Yamaha will, will, you know, get it. But I think at the moment, I was surprised, to be honest with you, that Andrew's short the to them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because... You know, I think people in the bivouac. You know, they're, they're good people, the Yamaha people. They have a different approach to, you know, they're very family orientated. They're very French, really, in in how they run things, with the good and bad aspects of that. You know. Yeah. Uh, but I think you know until, you know, they got. I mean, you know, Ross Branch and 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 um, and uh, Andrew Short are clearly capable of winning the DACA. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh.
1: Pedro Van Beven, he had his moment. Do you know? Remember a few years ago when he crashed and he was in the lead. You know. Yeah. Whether mentally he ever re- will recover from that disappointment, I, I don't know. You know, but he's a good rider as well. Jamie, you know, he can ride a motorbike. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've got the riders. Uh, KTM, I don't really know so much about the KTM. I know they've got a new bike coming
0: unsurprised undoubtedly i think uh, if ktm aren't a company to sit a rest on their laurels are they yeah. <laughs>
1: but you know the the you, you you look at that honda and it's just a work of art you know? yeah and i and think
0: I... visually this year when the piece was fast the honda looked comfortable it was yeah. really stable and it didn't kick around and bump around and it didn't look like the people on the honda on the limit whereas every time you saw a bit of footage of sam or or toby and they were pushing hard or even uh desultre i mean desultre always looks like he's pushing hard but (laughs) but especially with sam you know he's he's got a little bit of a calm riding style these days but he still looked like he was trying really hard to go the speed that he was going and and when he stepped over that line he wasn't comfortable to do it you know he sat where he sat because he wasn't it wasn't the same, do you know? Yeah. I mean, well, he's I matured, but
2: the
1: KTM was made for South America, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Where there was, it was more, you know, and you talked about Castero making special, uh, tracks for the bikes. And I think that's where that comes from, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: whereas Honda, I think the problem with Honda in the past is they've changed too much between the years, you yeah. know, but now they've got a bit of stability. They've got the confidence of having won it, mm-hmm. uh, and uh and then you've got um ktm i think they, yeah, they'll bring out a new bike next year so you know i mean machinery is important on the decker but it's not you know i think that toby price or, or desultory or sam didn't win you know there's not much in it is there
0: really no clearly not a huge amount no um so here's another question as well one thing i think uh whenever we've talked about dakar in the past is that you've always had a, a really good insight on who has the potential to win that race that hasn't yet won it and sometimes it doesn't come to fruition for you know dakar winning dakar is not just being a good rider it's the full package even finishing it is a complicated thing so <laughs> who out of the current crop of riders do you do you see has the potential to, to make a step up to be a genuine contender?
1: Well, it's interesting you say, because with my friends, we made it, we all picked a top five. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and my wife, who obviously is a bit involved in this, but really doesn't know much. She was, she won the pick. <laughs> go, I said, what do you pick him for? You know? So, uh, I think the other thing you have to remember is that a lot can happen in a year. Yeah. You know, uh, that's a problem for the organizers of the DACA, they're always kind of playing catch up, but also riders who who you know you don't know what they're up to in a year, they can develop massively in a year. So it's always a bit of a surprise what happens on the DACA. Um, who do I I think Ross Branch has a, a huge potential mm-hmm. if, if his bike doesn't blow up.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: You know. Uh so if Yamaha sorted that problem out, I think he could be a real contender. I think he's got, you know, he's got a very different approach to the other riders. He's a professional pilot. Yeah, meticulous and so he's got a job. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, he's massively motivated. He's got a really the you know that ex-colonial approach to it that it seems to work so well. For uh, I picked Daniel Sanders to finish third this year on the Dakar okay yeah and everybody's going what no it's impossible you can't do that you can't and you finish what fourth yeah fourth yeah so you know he's
0: i mean he's his history on an enduro bike is monumental he's not very well known in europe but his history on a dirt bike is monumental he's an incredible rider My my dad also i think picked him to be third or fourth
1: right yeah so i mean you know I think, you know, that Daniel, providing the, they make a bike that's slightly better, but even if they don't, I think, that, you know, you'd have to say that he was in with a serious chance.
2: And so yeah.
0: and so with, with De Soutre, obviously, he, I mean, he's made big leaps even between last year and this year. It seemed like he got just better, smarter, better. He's riding well. Do you think he has the capacity to make that final leap or is he just too on the edge all the time because that's how his riding style looks yeah. every photo of him
1: a very interesting thing to look at uh, desoltre um when he i uh, he trains at a track very near to where i live in the country and um i went out to see him on the first time he was riding a, a bog standard ktm he yeah, had bought a ktm rally bike you mm-hmm. know? And he couldn't believe the difference between the Yamaha and the, and the KTM, yeah. So that yeah. so it obviously suited him very well,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know. Uh, and then the other thing that's interesting about this story is he goes from a factory team with all the pressure to HT Rally, which mm-hmm. is a, a very well-run privateer team. And he seemed, you know, so he, he was well, He was in the same team as David Knight, but basically uh, Henk Helges, the guy who runs the team, gave him everything he wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of his comfort, mm-hmm. so he was super happy in that thing. Just an interesting sideline. Uh, so he got said so he's running really well in this privateer team. While he was in the race, you could clearly see he could finish in the top three. Uh, we'll get back to his riding in a bit, but um, and yet he said uh, he said to me, he "goes well." You know, I wonder, it's difficult for me to judge uh, how fast I should go sometimes. You know, if I I was in a factory team, I'd be able to pull out my phone, you know, 10 kilometers from the end and ask them where everybody else was and if I need to speed up or or speed down. Yeah. So I think that is an indication of how little anybody understands tactics, because you you think about that. (laughs) Stop. Pull your phone out, ring your team manager. You know, by the time you've done all that, whatever situation existed is gone.
0: Yeah, yeah, the one minute is is gone. It's
1: interesting that a top rider can think that. Yeah. You know, whereas really, he should just be riding the bike. Mm -hmm. So this is tactics that, you know, this is an indication of how little anybody, including the riders, understand what tactics are needed, you know. Yeah. And then you've got his riding a bit. So, well, I don't know. You know, I'm not a top rider myself. So, I mean, he does look a bit scary on the bike. And, the <laughs> stuff,
2: you
1: know? and all the other riders say that he's scary on a bike. Yeah. So,
0: but he seems to hold it together for most of the race each year.
1: I, so, I think it seems... So, imagine his basically technical riding ability is a limiting factor for him. Mm-hmm. Um. Yet... All the other elements that he managed to put together, like a good bike, maybe mm-hmm. not the best bike, but a good bike, a team he was happy in where he was the only rider that anybody was focused on. How much difference that made to him? Well, we've seen other people in the past take that similar
0: route and, and stick with it and it worked really well for them. Svitco is the most recent option. I don't know yeah. why he never got a factory ride, but his setup from the outside always looks like the next best thing. One team, five guys. He's obviously got good sponsors in Slovakian oil. That's a great sponsor to have. And and also Palanders was the same, you know. He always yeah. had his own setup and, and it worked really well. And both of those two have had fantastic results as privateers. I mean, Svitko yeah. finished second six, seven years ago or whatever it was, you know, so...
2: You'd
1: have to wonder if if somebody like Toby Price or, or Brabeck or somebody else had that kind of setup, what they could do with it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah, know?
1: yeah. I mean, I think this these five bike teams, you know, aren't really the the optimal way to run it. They are, for, as far as the factories are concerned, but for, as far as the riders are concerned, I'm not at all sure. Um, to get back to who else could win it. Um, Benavides' brother looked really, really good in the Andalusia rally, and I know the Andalusia rally is a very different format too mm-hmm. but he, he could clearly he can navigate very, very well
0: Well, and I suppose if you it's a little bit of that sibling thing as well, if one of them can do it, the other one is definitely going to believe that he he has that in the tank, you know
1: And they're probably training together and, and yeah, you know, so but I mean you know, Hero. I, I like. I really like that setup at Hero as well.
0: And is that still the Is it still Speedbrain that run that?
1: Yeah, uh, Wolfie. Yeah, uh, Wolfgang Fischer sold uh, his Speedbrain operation to Hero. Oh, okay. And they've developed a new motor because they were using the BMW Kimpco mm-hmm. engine. Now they've got. I think they ran out of spares. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> they've got a new engine. Wolfie runs a really good team, I think. So they've got, a, and they've got money behind them, you know. Yeah, yeah. Heroes, I don't know. The Hero's a huge,
0: phenomenally big company. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And, and they've got so at the X Speed Brain setup, they've got a research and development. So the right, the mechanics are working um, on the rally bikes, and then spending some days with the research and development as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So. Yeah, I think they're a lot of, they haven't got top, top riders at the moment, but they've got, I think they've got a lot of potential. um uh, Sherco had a quite a good year out. to be honest Yeah. Fantastic. It. You don't think they
0: could be unhappy with uh with that as an end result as a tiny French motorcycle company. But
1: you know that in the difference to Yamaha, they can make stuff, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: the, Yamaha have to outsource everything. All the yeah. Time. Okay. Yeah. Um, whereas, uh, where shirker can make stuff and the, the bike's quite different now to the to the original enduro bike yeah know. yeah so um
0: and they have a little bit of indian money behind them as well no with tvs yeah, and, got, yes yeah, yeah yeah
1: yeah i don't know quite how that works uh you know how much wedge they're getting from it but uh yeah you know but you know, I can't help thinking that Honda. Uh, there was a rumor that Honda were going to pull out. I don't know if you heard that.
0: Yeah, I, well, a little bit, yeah. But I don't know how. You, it's impossible to
1: know without. I got no. Yeah. But if they do stay with the riders they've got at the moment, uh, and the and the bike they've got at the moment, they you know they've got to be looking good. You know, I mean, at one time towards the end, they had three Hondas on the podium. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it was still a feasible thing if
1: Bereda didn't
0: do a <laughs> Yeah. So,
1: so, yeah, you know, up and coming riders, I'd definitely say Daniel Sanders.
0: OK, I think that's a good, safe bet for sure. So my last question is actually not to do with bikes so much. Um, One of the it, it was really obvious when Cyril was a motorbike rider that he was infinitely competitive do you know he trained super hard he took it super seriously it meant the world to him almost to the point where maybe it was detrimental how competitive he was and then he moved to cars and he he looked good you know he was learning quickly but the last couple of years i don't know his maybe his attitude has changed a little bit so what what's going on with him and his car driving career and does he still see it as something that he wants to to try and win in a car or is he now a little bit more eh I'm just going for the fun.
1: Yeah. Different. I mean, I don't have so much contact with Cyril these days. Uh, I mean, no, no, I say hello to him and, you know, it's a little bit, you know, like a little bit like a divorce, you know, <laughs> you, you, you an, an amicable divorce, you know, um, when you spend that much time with somebody over 15 years and then you stop working with them, it's the relationship. It's like, you think, why it's almost like in a parallel existence. Though. Yeah. Okay. But, um, uh, I think there's no guarantee that you'll go from a bike to a car and, and be good. Mm-hmm. I think uh, one of Cyril's huge problems was uh, his relationship with the co-driver. Okay. And he did get through quite a few of them, you know.
0: <laughs> Just struggling to trust them and their navigation
1: and... Yeah, and not losing with it. You know, like he had um, Jean-Paul Cottre who was uh, won seven times with... Uh, Petter mm-hmm. so it's probably quite a good mechanic, a uh, good co-driver. You have to guess, yeah. yeah. And and he only did one uh, one race, one DACA with Cotre. Uh, he had Castere as a co-driver, and that wasn't a super happy existence. He got two very strong characters in a car. It's probably not a recipe for success. <laughs> so I I think that stymied him a lot. um You know, he's maybe not, you know, like Petr Renssel is just a different world, isn't he? You know. Incredible. Yeah. You know, Petr Renssel was the only winner that I know on the DACA that didn't have a super complicated personality. Yeah, Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a very diplomatic way of wording that.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I still have a a living to earn, but... um, (laughs) You know, he had so much talent on a bike that he didn't need to go, you know, yeah. he didn't need to get weird with it, you know?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas the others, you know, not necessarily, Cyril always said it's not the fastest rider who's going to win there. hmm That might have changed now, but at his time, certainly it wasn't. So, you know, you've got Nanny Roma, who only won a car because, uh, in a car because Petr Ensel gave him the victory. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know that story. No,
0: but I think it was pretty obvious that when yeah. from the outside.
1: Pet Renzel wanted to be released from from uh, riding with X Ray, uh, driving with X Ray, to go and drive for Persia, and that was part of the deal. But to let a win. So, you know, who else have you got who's made that switch from bikes to cars really successfully?
0: Well, yeah, no, no one really. Even even with Nanny, he he carried the same wildness that he had on a bike to driving a car as well it wasn't a surprise when roma's car was cartwheeling down the track basically it's like (laughs) oh that's happened again
1: he's a top 10 but he's yeah all things being equal i mean the thing with cars is is Without the right car, you you going nowhere, you know. Yeah, yeah, and, and you he, can see that for sure. Yeah. yeah, even you know Alatia this year was complaining about the difference in between cars and by uh, the, the four wheel drive and the two wheel drive. Mm. The rules clearly favour a two wheel drive car. I'm sure that will change in in the future. They're talking about for factory cars only four wheel drive will be allowed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the, the the big thing at the DACA this year was the announcement of the. Um, the DACA future. I don't know if you saw much about that. No, I didn't, know. Okay, so in by 2024, the bivouac will be uh, powered uniquely by renewable energy. Oh, okay, yeah. By 26, all factory car teams will have to use alternative energy. And then by 2030, all cars will have to be renewable energy. Wow, that's... Uh... That's a big progress. Yeah, so what interesting it means that the DACA, which is slightly a pariah in the world of, you know, in our world, Mm -hmm. um, could switch, flip literally from being something that's not very well regarded on a global level Mm -hmm. because of its carbon footprint to something that's at the forefront of ecological progress. Yeah. That could be huge for the deck because if you can get an alternative energy cart at the end of the DACA, you know that you validated the concept, haven't I
0: mean. you? Yeah, well, and I think also that probably carries over really well in, into the motorbike side because those changes will have to come. And, and at the mo- at the moment, motorcycling has some catching up to do. The only company that really had some significant progress went bankrupt, and now it's Harley leading the way. Which is well.
1: There's no, <laughs> interestingly, there's no discussion at the moment about bikes using alternative energy.
0: But I, it's got, it's got to come if the cars do it, right? Like those things. Otherwise, Both. the bikes become the dirty, the dirty little secret. It,
1: this is the danger, you know, um, because uh, I have two friends that tried uh, this electric bike that's made in Italy by the guy who used to work with Sherco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember the name of it. It's kind of wild, homemade-looking sort of thing. Slightly, yeah. Yeah. But one of them managed to get 60 kilometres out of it and the other 70 kilometres. Yeah, it's got some work to do. You know, so that's a problem. And it weighs a ton, you know? Yeah. Um, Whereas the cars, uh, they're all using hydrogen. Yeah. Okay? And so they've all got a hydrogen tank in there. Where do you put a tank of hydrogen on the motorcycle? Hopefully not. (laughs) Well you know that for instance the trucks have got a much better capability to use alternative energy than the cars because they've got so much space yeah yeah. and they're already heavy so it's not a yeah but it's a little bit of a worry for the future of bikes i Mm. have to say Mm. Uh, at the moment there doesn't seem to be any now it could be that the cars develop something that the bikes could use but at the moment nobody's talking about bikes and as you say uh it would be a pity for bikes to be marginalized mm. from the DACA. Rally organisers aren't don't really like bikes very much to be honest. in in a way. I mean you look at the Silkway, only two years have they had bikes. Yeah. One two years. One year.
0: I suppose for the organ from an organizer's point of view, the bikes are uh, both a PR blessing and a PR nightmare.
2: <laughs> in the same exactly. sentence.
1: Yeah, and and, and also you have to remember that it's the boss of the rally that has to ring up the families. This has been an accident. So psychologically it takes a toll on them as well. Yeah, 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 for sure. They they need them, but, you know, so that you've got to be careful of that, you know, that the bikes could get marginalised in the future, possibly with these ecological changes. Mm. But, I don't think it will, because they're so central, you know a rally without bikes is not really a rally, you know it's a Silkway discovery, yeah, okay, yeah,
0: and is that why you think they made that change? is just because it it kind of lacked audience and yeah,
1: yeah, it lacked that you know the look, I don't know, I'm biased, you're biased, you know i you know you watch the coverage and you go, oh, cars, yeah, vaguely interested trucks, not at all s s v s you know. The only bit
0: about the SSVs that interests me is that they look, from my point of view, like really fun to drive. Yeah, like, I, w- I would like to do it in one, but but I don't. It's not particularly exciting to watch.
1: No, it doesn't look great to watch. But I mean, you look at the entries for SSVs; it's massive now. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I think uh, the Silkway introduced by and they introduced a very limited. You know, the, 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 not everybody can turn up at the Silkway and ride a motorcycle. Okay, basically, okay. it was only. Factory teams and HT rally that went, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, that's so yes, yeah, yeah. I, I think you've got a, obviously a, a future with bikes. I think they have to have them, but I think it'd be a pity if they got left behind in this uh in this change to alternative energy.
0: Mm. That's uh, something I, w- yeah. There's a lot to think about there for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you've got you've got far. You know, I think that once in two thousand and twenty-six, when all all the factory cars are running alternative energy, the bikes aren't going to be looking so good next to them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure.
0: No, absolutely. But I, I think you have the same problem with MotoGP and other high levels of of motorsport as well, right? Like even even Formula One, which is the king of burning fuel, they're they've made huge strides towards developing hybrid engines and that technology for 10 years now. And and they're at a point where even though they still burn petrol, their engines are incredibly efficient and the technology has trickled down into, into road car technology already. You have Formula E, which is, I think they've done a fantastic job of what that product is. But in motorcycling, we have nothing at the moment. There's not even the technology in bikes every time someone tries to start it. It kind of doesn't go anywhere until Harley have done it just now. You yeah. know, the KTM e-bike is, it's, it's a toy. It's a fun bike, but it's not a, it's not a replacement. Alter disappeared. The British brand that started up in a Tesla style way arc lasted eight months before they ran out of money. And, mm-hmm. and it is, it, 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 yeah, it needs to change. I'm sure it will, you know, you've seen the pictures of the Honda, and Yamaha have got some relationship with a Dutch company going on, but yeah, it's got a long way to go before you can imagine an electric car being able to uh, electric motorcycle, being able to do a 600 kilometer in a single day. Do you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, you've got, you know, obviously electric trials bikes have got a great future, Mm -hmm. you know, it's perfectly suited to that, but you know, you know, there's a big step from a a trials bike to a a rally bike.
2: you (laughs) You know,
1: I'm sure, I'm sure they'll do it, you know, but the thing is, you know, the car. Every everybody's got a car, you know. Globally, you know, there's going to be an exploit. So they have to, you know, the the motivation and the money to develop an alternative to energy car is a zillion times more than it's for a bike.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So my last question, um and this uh, this one actually came from my dad because he's reached that point in his age cycle where he's starting to evangelize about the. How the Dakar was, <laughs> so his kind of uh, his core question was around the the adventurous side of the Dakar. Dakar originally became famous because it was an adventure; it was a survival race more than a more than a race. And over the years, that has transitioned massively to where more and more of the field are going there because it's a race. And and you mentioned it before we started this podcast that. Uh, very much now you don't you don't get so many more hopeful people going to the race it shone through this year that it didn't seem to be that many stories of people surviving crazy situations there was a couple on the tv but it's mostly now about those front guys do you think it is still an adventure or do you think now it is a race that just happens to go over a long distance
1: well, look, I think it's still an adventure for the people that are capable of doing it.
2: hmm
1: You know, if you look, just look, let's look at the UK entry this year. Um, you've got Neil Hawker. Mm-hmm. Who is about the only UK really privateer. He was in the Malmoto class. You know, he's not a a top rider but he's a good rider you know he was an expert level enduro rider for sure Mm -hmm.
0: described by some championship class riders as the biggest waste of talent in the uk (laughs) he's a very skillful rider
1: (laughs) yeah yeah and he can obviously ride a motorbike but he where did he i can't remember where he finished in the 50s something like that 40 something yeah yeah okay so you know and he's having a great time Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know it's he's living his adventure i've got a lot of respect for the way he does it, For you know, sure. it looks too relaxed to be, but, you know, I don't think it's as relaxed as he's making it out to be. Uh, but he's having a big adventure. Right? Yeah. But he's not what he's not doing. He's not doing the kind of thing that you used to see 10 years ago where people were really quite limited in their riding ability, but they could get through just on sheer willpower or, mm-hmm. or determination or, uh, i think that's gone now yeah
0: and um, um do you think that's because the the level has got deeper and deeper and deeper that those people just can't keep up
1: yeah interesting there was only there was only one rider i saw on the whole rally that like looked like one of those old uh you know old style entries it was a guy called james Alexander from botswana yeah Did
0: you see him? yeah and he was on the tv a little bit yeah,
1: so this guy is like, he's finishing, he was the only one who was like finishing at night, coming in at God knows what time, looked like hell. Uh, and he did it, you know, the guy was obviously had huge resources, mental resources to yeah. carry on doing what he was doing. But the the thing is now you go to the Malmoto class, which was supposed to be the, you know, the, 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 the engine for that adventure rider thing. Yeah. But they're all in their country, they come from, they're all top riders. Yeah they're all riding ktms you know so the 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 main level of the maintenance they're having to do as long as they don't really trash the bike is quite limited you know it's yeah. filters and oil kind of thing you know you've got that couple from spain that are riding yamahas that it's like that looks a bit of a struggle um you know you have to, maintaining a yamaha is not as straightforward as maintaining a, a ktm it's at least twice as much work a night you know so yeah um so you know yeah i think the, the the privateer riders are still living a, a huge adventure, a huge challenge, personal challenge, and a huge mental challenge, and a huge physical challenge. The the, the difference is that they're all pretty good riders.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and so the days of, you know, I've been correspondent for the DACA for as long as I've been working for them. I used to, I used to get all sorts of, you know, lunatics ringing me up going, you know, I've got a GS and I've ridden, you know, a gravel track once in my life and i want to do the DACA and and they could do it you know some of them did it and some of them got to the end not many now you've obviously got the pre-selection criteria as well
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know you have to have done a in theory an fim rally or an approved road to DACA rally so the riders do that and very quickly if they're not if they're struggling in, in a rally du Morocco or, um, there was an English guy quite recently who wanted to do the DACA and he came to Rally Dumrakh and he hurt himself, not badly, but before he hurt himself, he was way off the base, you know? Yeah. And and he he realised, nobody needed to tell him, he realised that, you know, the DACA was a step too far from him. Mm-hmm. Whether that's good or bad, I don't know. You know, it's lost some of its charm you know the world has moved on you know sport has become more professional Uh, what's the pity from the uk entry side of things is you can have a a french guy in the malmoto who will get all his entry paid for by sponsors yeah You know, uh, Franco Pico, which is obviously an exception. I don't know if
0: you'll
1: know who he, but I think he won it four times, the Dakar in the 80s, on those big Yamahas. Mm -hmm. And there he is at 65 in the Malmoto, and he's doing that as a business. Yeah. I had a chat with him, you know. He's making money out of it. Wow. Yeah. I said, what are you doing here? And he goes, well, I had a bike shop, but I make more money out of this. So I think from the, the UK point of view and the American point of view, you had Skylar house as well saying how we have to sell everything. And I yeah. think that that's the pity, really. Not so much that it's moved on. You can't really do anything about that. Um, but that for English-speaking riders, it seems such a struggle to get them. You know, So there's a lot of very good enduro riders in the UK that would be capable of doing the DACA. Um, who just can't get the funding, you know? And if they lived in another country, they could. You know? Yeah, That's
0: well, the UK at the moment. I mean, most of most of our listeners don't follow enduro, but the UK at the moment has two of the best dirt bike riders in the world. You know, yeah. the last five world championships have been run won by British riders, and there there are the level of enduro in the UK for some reason. I'm not really sure why. In spite of all the circumstances that we have here are is phenomenal. Holcomb mm-hmm. and Freeman are are on another planet and, and I have no doubt when you watch Steve ride especially that he could make that transition fantastically well. He's a prerequisite built in rally rider. He's six foot, he's strong, he's thick, he's an incredibly good big bike rider and I think if you and he's fantastic in the sand, if you made that transition, he he could be a, a Daniel Sanders level in his first one do you know yeah. but yeah. the like you say even even for Naito this year as a legend of our sport him getting to the Dakar is something that you know he had to front and pay for himself and it was a big a big effort from the community to get him there do you know I've yeah. I've never yeah. seen anyone fund a kickstarter campaign like that and he he's managed to but by the skin
1: of his teeth and by the skin of his teeth and yeah and you know and and you've got other riders that you've never heard of in and over in the Malmoto class. You're making um, money. <laughs> you know, you know, not making huge amounts of money, but they're coming away with the profit. You know, so yeah, I think yeah. You know, I think that's and you know, if everything's changed in terms of riding ability, unfortunately that aspect hasn't changed. You know British riders have always really struggled and yeah. American riders to get the funding and and unfortunately that's still the same, you know. And you know, you have talked about the top Enduro riders, but you've got a huge behind them a huge depth of yeah fantastic yeah yeah um so that's you know whether that will change i've got no idea maybe knight's thing will knight's thing put people off you know you think well if david knight's struggling to get the money how i am got a snowballs hell in chance you know or will that encourage people I, i've got no idea and then when you see his result although i think he did a great job uh, i was really surprised how great a job he did actually because yeah, you think David Knight is just going to explode on the second stage, but he really didn't. You know, he really uh, managed this race. You
0: know, yeah, he did, and that was a kind of one of the biggest question marks beforehand that everyone had was was he going to be smart and yeah. and ride well within himself, or was he going to, and and maybe this is the age thing that he's let go of the fact to some degree. I don't know if you read his uh, his bio on the on the Dakar website is absolutely amazing for anyone that knows him in any capacity is fantastic but uh yeah the, the way he the way he the the, the question mark over whether he was going to do exactly like you said and go out and try and win on his second stage and prove to the world that he was still the best rider in the world or whether he was just like i'm going for the experience which he clearly did and his daily updates are fantastic i think they they really add something that the the tv coverage at the moment is kind of lacking in getting across you know
1: the, the thing with the TV coverage, which has always been a stumbling block for the UK entrance, is obviously what you see is what's called the international feed. Yeah. So all it can do is first three bikes, first three cars, and a few trucks. Um, you know, the Dutch, for example, club together to get their own edit. You know, and but you need you
0: need more than two privateers to make that happen because for sam and for jamie it's not really that important their their focus is on fulfilling the content the the contents of their contract whereas for you know you need a the dutch entrant is phenomenal each year there's 10 15 riders from holland so it's a plausible thing to to start it's a chicken and egg problem right we the motorcycle media here don't care about it the national media don't care i saw a piece on the guardian website about it Uh, but it was one piece at the end of the race, which was the twenty best photos from from the event. Yeah, it's great that it's in that paper, but why is it not every day? Is the kind of I suppose my question, but that's well, a deep a deep rabbit hole to go down of of solving yeah, that problem.
1: It's, it's a problem that's been you know you've had what you've had over the history of the DACA in the UK is little peaks of interest. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when you and your dad did it, I think there was a little peak of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've had a few of those over the years. I mean, Lyndon Poskett did an amazing job. Incredible, of, yeah. Uh, and I remember seeing some statistics from ASO. I think the year that uh, he did the DACA uh, with the Motorex sponsorship, he was the fourth most mediatized competitor on the DACA. Mm.
2: Which is amazing.
1: Then, that's all from an iPhone. You know? Yeah, he yeah. really, he really understood what needed to be do, done. You know, and I, you know, love or loathe his output. Uh, uh, he, you know, th- to have the force of character to come in from a rainy day in Bolivia. I remember, mm-hmm. you
2: know,
1: and 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 live in hell, and then get out his camera and make a f- film of it. You know, yeah, yeah. unbelievable.
0: And and also that I think what really worked with Lyndon's content on Dakar was that there was a story there that you could get behind, you know, I think with the, the official coverage, there is a lack of story that you kind of, you see what the pro riders do. If you watch the Red Bull TV thing, you get an interview with a pro rider a day. They tell you a tiny bit of information and then we all go to Instagram to see what they had to say. And that's the story. And I think, I mean, the, I can't imagine how difficult it is to put a TV show together from Dakar, where there's no satellite feed and the, they're just dropping cards off in the desert. But it feels like to me the bit that everybody watching wants is the story. You want to you want to know how all those MalmoTo people are doing. You don't just want to see what they go through one day. You want to know their story, and you know even. I don't know if you know him, but Alexandra Bispo, for me, he was also the one guy who I was like, I want to know what's going on with him. He, he's clearly not a great rider and he's clearly the nicest guy in the world because he's oh, he's in love with her, but he's helping this woman out who is an yeah. even worse rider, but they're trying to get over Yamaha.
1: this. Talking about the two Yamaha.
0: No. Um, the, ah, the,
1: the guys that they dropped out in, in the end, yeah. Yeah,
0: and, and but even though they drop out, I want to know what's going on. Do you know they're riding through the night? There's a story there that I think everyone can get behind in a way that, you know, the front of the race is amazing and they ride incredibly, but they're never going to give us access because they're too worried about what's going on in their own world. Whereas these people at the back that are going through a tangible struggle, a few years ago, they did a really good job with the My Dakar thing where they did give a lot of coverage and intro to that. And that started to wane away and, that's the bit as a as a viewer now not someone in the race i i want to know about every single day i want to know just a great story that happens someone does something dumb and everybody else finds out about it but put like even if it's only on social media do you know if they have a completely separate thing where a dude walks around with a dslr and he says what happened to you today and he's like well my swing arm broke or you know whatever
1: i think the thing is look. if you look at that 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 couple well they weren't a couple when they started i don't know (laughs) they probably are now (laughs) they went they went through a lot together it was interesting how the mainstream media if you like the bivouac media uh latched onto it as virtually the only story of of that kind you know yeah yeah so you know and, and and we talked about you know, now you've got good riders. The girl in that only got her entry through doing the Andalusia rally. hmm And I think if she, the Andalusia rally was obviously a rally apart that was set up by Castera to try and validate some rookie candidates, you know what I mean? And normally that wouldn't be a rookie candidate. Rally. Level event. Yeah. You know, so she would have gone and done the Rally du Maroc or the Dubai or something like that and probably wouldn't have got a place. Mm-hmm. So that it's kinda of like your pro- there's you know and everybody's right in the Malmoto, everybody but like three riders is on a KTM. Yeah. So the struggle is not really there. If you eliminate the people like those that couple
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and they were on an EXCs, were
0: they? I think I think he rides a rally bike. I'm not sure, but yeah,
1: it, it's yeah. So if you wipe out the you know, if you say oh, right, every every priority is on it, you have to have a really good reason not to be on a, on a KTM and there's the pre-selection, then you're, the stories that you're talking about are suddenly not that much in evidence. There just aren't that many. So here's a question, and it looked a little bit like they tried
0: to do this this year. Uh, is, do you think a bit like they would in Formula One or a bit like they do in MotoGP, they need to start to introduce some mechanical limitations to create, Almost to force this scenario where maybe you have a limit on how the engine works, or because they did it with the tyre rule this year to slow it down or to do whatever, and it created a little bit of drama. But maybe do they need to do that a bit to make it not harder in terms of riding, but harder in terms of getting to the finish without a mechanical issue because the bikes are so damn reliable?
1: Well, it's interesting, while I was there, because I was working with the Federation, I got a little bit of insight. I mean, clearly the six-tire rule didn't work.
0: <laughs> no, no,
1: it didn't go down no. well. <laughs> and the danger is, it didn't slow anybody down. The danger is that somebody hurts themselves riding on a knackered tyre. Because, mm. you know, Toby Price proved, just because he's got a load of zip ties around his tyre, he's not going to go any slower, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and and if it, imagine if that tyre just disintegrated when he was at 160 kilometres an hour. Yeah that's not helping safety at all so i i'd be very surprised to see that rule in again what they are to talking about is sealing the cylinder head yeah so i think that will happen the, the, the problem is they got a little bit caught out by the rules because your piston change you were limited on your piston changes before you got penalties but you can take you could take the head off as much as you wanted so new rings yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can change the rings, but not the piston. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I okay. Think yeah. What next year is okay. that they'll seal the cylinder head. But for KTM and Honda, do you, do you, do you not
0: think that they must be pretty close to, for the most part, not having to do that now? Because the privateer bike, I I mean yeah. I don't know what it's like all the time, but my privateer engine and my dad's privateer engine and most privateer engines don't get opened. Yeah. So
1: you, you're not quite riding at quite the same speeds there. It's going to be exactly. For them,
0: isn't it? yeah but i mean from a privateer, tip... right,
1: they're not with their three euro pistons yeah uh, they <laughs> yeah. could probably get away with it um but it's another you know i think that would be a way to go obviously i don't think this the tire rule would be a way to go they're talking about putting an air restrictor on the bikes
0: yeah but that just slows it down and makes it more reliable rather than
1: yeah, I probably won't even slow it down because I think I'll work a way around yeah. it. But what it probably will do is reduce the, the ability so you imagine you're flat out and you need to lift the wheel over the something yeah. which It'll probably which stock doing that.
0: Potentially makes it more dangerous because you can't yeah. ride your way out of
1: safety. Exactly, exactly. So you know the you know, there is particularly active on this aspect of it. I think the big, big result in terms of safety this year was the airbag. Yeah. Well, I don't think anyone, uh, you know,
0: there was, there was no incident where someone was like, my airbag didn't go off. It wasn't a good thing. Every piece of information I saw about it was someone saying, I had a big crash today and my airbag went off. And I'm really glad it was there.
1: Yeah. You, it's interesting. You look at the injuries, there's quite a lot of broken arms and, and let, Well, you know, quite a lot. But it seems that the core body was much better,
2: mm. much
1: better protected. So. Mm. The trouble with things like airbags is what they do is like when they introduce seatbelts into the UK compulsory on cars, it's the speed that every speed went up. Yeah. Because everybody's you know, a bit more comfortable. Yeah. So the danger with things like airbags is just people ride faster. You know? mm. So, you know, how they can slow, we, talk, we started talking about how we can slow it down. And I said that I thought that the, the constraints of making the robot for these two years in Saudi Arabia meant that they couldn't really do what they wanted to do. But I think in the future, what they'll do is make the navigation trickier and, and the terrain trickier. Mm-hmm. That it down a bit. Um, they'll introduce a, a, an air restrictor that might have an impact. I mean, you know, there's stuff that we haven't even thought of that they're I'm sure working on, you know, they need to constantly improve the level of safety. Mm. I'm not saying that they'll succeed in, in you know, it's always going to be a dangerous race. You know, that's,
0: no, and I, but I think I think uh, and we talked about this in our, our podcast that we did after the, ra- after the race. I, I don't think anyone riding it has a problem with it being dangerous when the the risk is a risk that they can decide upon. So if you yeah. if you if you're riding a piece and it's predictable and you choose to go fast, or like Toby, your tire splits and you choose to go fast, that's different to to riding in a situation that's dangerous but out of your control you know sometimes you get it in the desert especially where the piste is dangerous just because the piste is dangerous not because you can calculate that risk and and that's where you start i as a rider for example start to get uncomfortable you know because you have a now in dakar you have a requisite speed you have to ride if you ride too slow you just you get in people's dust that gets dangerous you don't keep up with the race we saw it with the couple of people that weren't quite good enough if you don't ride fast enough you just don't get there but it means that everyone has to ride a little bit close to the edge of their ability to keep up which means you have a certain amount of faith in the organizers to take charge of that to a point as well yeah
1: Do you know? i mean you, you had the the thing where the buzzer was going off for, for danger threes mm. uh you know well one of the things they said is the buzzer was making the same sound for the danger threes as it was for the cars coming up behind you,
0: yeah
1: you know, right, so they'll probably come up with something at all, you know so you'll know if it's a danger three or it's a it's a tier you know mm-hmm. so that you know there's always little steps I think that can accelerate the advantages because you have Castera very focused on this and because he has two other rallies mm-hmm. he can try things out before the daca was always playing catch-up because they only had one event a year
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know now he can you know i mean the road book thing is, is a major yeah a major and a major safety aspect as well because previously you had top riders working three or four hours on there well
0: right? even right. as a privateer you did it you did it yeah. because they did it do you know
1: yeah Yeah. So everybody's getting more sleep, and that's got to be an increase to safety. So, you know, I think there's no major, major one thing that they can do. Yeah. But I think with Castera on the case, chipping away at it, um, and and with the possibility of trying out different things on other rallies, whether if they get something wrong, the the danger is you introduce something at the beginning of the deck of it. And then, you know, after one day's racing, you realise it's a huge mistake.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm you know, sure. which can happen. You know, yeah, yeah for not, sure.
1: so hard. You know, everybody knows what they're talking about. You know, when the the ride, when the organisers make a decision about safety, they obviously consult the the factory teams. You know, mm-hmm. all the riders give their opinion. They have meetings. But even with that level of consultation, you can have a thing like, "Oh bloody hell, we've made a big mistake here." You know.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's the same with most motorsport, isn't it? That's, yeah. yeah.
1: The advantage is now that they can, you know, if they make a big mistake on the DACA and it becomes apparent on the first day, you're like, "Wow, well, this is going to be a nightmare for two weeks. You know, so the the level of risk they were prepared to take on making changes was limited. Now yeah. they could, they tried out airbags on, on the Andalusia rally. OK, it works, boom, improves the algorithms a bit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I, I think there will be continue to make progress with them
0: well it's a nice positive uh a positive end a positive end to my questions and um, because yeah i think that that's quite nice to hear because from from a outside perspective it can be really difficult to judge what's going on you don't have that information or know these the people in charge at all and so all you can kind of judge it on is the tiny bits of information you have and 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 the results that are happening you know and it, it's really sad that someone passed away this year again from a, a similar sort of situation to we've had in the past it's a yeah a bad head injury that led to someone passing away and another bad head injury with santosh but it, it's quite encouraging to hear that the limitations of the situation are something that can be improved
1: well i think you know i don't know in in france now you have airbags for cyclists okay an airbag that goes around your neck mm-hmm So you don't wear a helmet, and if you have a crash, the airbag comes up over your head.
0: Oh, okay, yeah, which is probably a damn
1: sight better than a polystyrene helmet. (laughs) You know, you could do that with with the bike ride. I mean, they're going to be coming out like Michelin men, you know, but, you know, there's there's still lots of things to do. And and as you say, when any accident happens, you know, it it touches the bivouac because, you know, the chances are you know that person, you know, or you Mm next to them in the queue for the food you know it, mm-hmm. it, you know i don't think anybody who's not been on the daca wants to get the idea that nobody cares you know it's, no. a, mass, it's a massive concern and and that touches everybody on the daca and especially the the bosses hugely you know mm. so the motivation to improve is, is massive
2: mm.
1: well like you say i think when once you're on that
0: race especially after the second or third day, everybody sort of becomes aware of their own survival a little bit, you know, and you band together and you ride with people and share food and stories. And yeah, it's quite a community sort of event in a way. I think a lot of other events aren't It's one of the, the most, the best bits about my experience there was that community. It was wholesome in a really lovely way. You share the, the near death experience together. Week in, week out.
1: And I think, you know, that Malmoto category is, is really good now. I, I, the the only problem with it is it's draining. You know, the, I can see the, the privateer, the good privateer teams are really struggling to
2: to fill
0: their... Oh, okay, yeah. And especially this year with COVID, the, the, the super low entry as well,
1: you know. yeah. But so those teams like Bass and HT that could foster new talent mm-hmm. there, i've seen
0: a bit of a difficult situation right? so mm. have to that. well this has been when a fan next when am i going next yeah. i i don't know i've got i would rather i think i think it's an interesting question because it, for me dakar in south america had this kind of allure of that i think it, on a personal level maybe isn't quite there do you know the and a big part of when I went with my dad was to enjoy that experience with him. And and yeah. if I don't have that, like my riding on a personal level is something I like to do with people. It's not a very solo activity. So if I haven't got someone to enjoy that experience with, it doesn't excite me in quite the same way. Um, and yeah. so those two things for me on a personal going to ride it level, maybe aren't there. I think, uh-huh. and, and the thing with Dakar that I, feel inside is that if you're if you're not wholly committed to that goal it's a really sketchy thing to do like you have to be there and be present and really want especially as a british person there's no way you're getting to dakar by accident you know there's some money there i'll just go you have to commit like it's a it's a a year of your life where you go this is it this is what i want to do and when you get there you have to want to be there sure and and i don't think i have that want to be there at the moment. Mm. I'm not saying I never will. What I do, like what does really interest me is the, those events that have that little bit more exploration about them. The ones that go somewhere like silk way. I look at that mm. and I'm kind of the, the the little bit I did in China was one of the most incredible riding experiences I ever had. And all mm. it made me want to do was to go there and see what's there. And that adventure side of it kind of captures me a little bit more than than what i think dakar kind of is a little bit which is now it's a big fast race which is still an adventure but it's it's not maybe the same in my head anyway it doesn't excite me
1: ironically i think you know that saudi arabia is has the terrain you know riders are happy with the terrain you know uh when the silkway is 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 in our i've worked on it twice i mean even from my perspective stuck in the bivouac it was a great adventure to go across you know and start in moscow and finish in Xi'an. or you know yeah. that was i like that i must admit you know everybody likes that you know yeah, yeah. Uh, but and ironically uh the silkway is almost impossible for a privateer to do because of the con- logistical constraints of getting there and getting back you know? yeah but, and yet as you say you know i think it ticks a lots of boxes for for uh, privateer riders mm. in the adventure aspect I think the other thing that was talked about a lot uh, this year on, on the DACA was where it's going to go next year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think ASO are aware of the fact, although loops are much easier logistically to organise, the heart and soul of a rally is its itinerant nature. Yeah. You know, and so if you look at the South American, was yours itinerant? The, the, the Yeah, it
0: was uh, Buenos Aires chile bolivia back to buenos aires
1: yeah but it, you know that if you can do i think a few of them started in buenos aires and finished you know on on the other coast yeah that is really ticking all the boxes it's yeah the organizers and i think uh, next year the rumours I heard, and this is nothing from castere or anything like that, but the rumours I heard, the Bivouac Radio Bivouac, was talking about things like maybe starting in Dubai, going up into Oman, and finishing in somewhere in Saudi oh, yeah. Arabia. Yeah. So yeah. I think that would help the, the you know, the thing is when you went to Africa, Africa was just basically scary, wasn't it? You know. <laughs> yeah, it
2: was mental. Yeah
1: not particularly welcoming but you, you were going wow you know and then you we went to south america and south america isn't scary but it has that fantastic atmosphere that i loved you know
0: yeah it was amazing yeah
1: you no know, and, and 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 also stupid things like if you lost your toothbrush you could actually go and buy another one you know, where <laughs> yeah <laughs> well
0: and, and in a different way because there was this this uh atmosphere around it from the general public crazy things happened you'd be in the middle yeah. of a stage and someone would turn up and be like do you need a spanner and you're like where did yeah. you even come from yeah. you know and they're like oh it happened to me and dad one day where his bike broke down and it's really late in the stage and and this truck turned up and they're like hey man do you need some help and they helped us pull the bikes apart almost problematically but yeah. they'd driven all the way from Bolivia. And we were in the middle of Argentina and they were there with a toolbox. And and that kind of thing is that, that makes that adventure for me. Do you know that kind of that environment, if you can create that, which South America, it's different from Africa, but it still had something that was ridiculous and unique, almost like a, in a tour de France style atmosphere, you know, you, yeah, you yeah. I mean you did everyone there, you get up in the morning in Argentina and there'd be 5,000 people stood outside the bivouac cheering for no reason for people that, <laughs> that are irrelevant <laughs> you, in the, yeah, exactly. I'm like, you don't know who I am. Why yeah. do you care? But you know, the, the hype and the enthusiasm around it and the environments were incredible for a rally.
1: Do you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, Saudi Arabia has got the terrain it's got the funding to do things like this, um the ecological changes for the cars. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it's obviously it's got its drawbacks. Uh, you know, we don't have we have very little contact with the locals. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I have to say it's, it was fascinating to you know, I mean, we were in a unfortunately a COVID bubble. You know, we weren't allowed out. You know. mm-hmm. We had a test before we left, a test when we arrived, and once we would arrived and had our tests, we, we weren't allowed to mix with anybody. You know, we weren't even allowed out the bivouac. Yeah. Uh, so, but I remember at the end of the rally coming from the airport and we went along the coast to, to the hotel and it was a uh, evening and there were just hundreds of people, uh, on the beach. Okay. Yeah. And, and so you still see something that you're not going to see Yeah. normally, you know, and, and, things that you don't understand you'd go the first year when we went into a, a restaurant and and there were women without any kind of veil at all uh-huh. you know? and you thinking well that's not what i thought it was going to be you know yeah okay yeah. yeah so there's you know it's never you know what you what you read about and what you actually experience is never the same and there's always an element of discovery you know even in in saudi arabia you think i mean i learned stuff that I and you meet you know you meet there were saudi compared to quite a lot of people from the gulf competing and, and you talk to them and uh, there was a girl there who was i think linked to the saudi royal family who's looking to drive a, an ssv next year so that'll be you know a few years ago women weren't allowed to drive in saudi arabia now you've got this woman who's you know planned to put an ssv team together so the, you know it's i don't really want to get into the politics of it but it's never quite what it seems you know yeah. um and unfortunately, where there's a grain of sand in the world, there often seems to be difficult political situation, whether you go to Silkway or, or Dubai or, you know, mm-hmm. even Australia has its problems. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, but,
2: it,
1: you know, it's not the same in Saudi Arabia, as in South America. And, and you know, as people that hated it when it went to South America and there's people, I loved it when it went to South America, I'll be totally honest with you, I thought it mm. was fantastic um and there's people that don't like it now in south in Saudi Arabia but there's people who love it you know
0: yeah 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 well Ricky Brabeck seems to like it <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah if you live in Utah yeah
1: it. it's probably quite similar
0: well this has been fantastic insightful and honest and wonderful um
1: yeah and Thank a you. pleasure pleasure to pleasure to talk about it you know I've I've done it a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> not, not raced it. So, you know, the first time I ever rode in in Tunisia, for so, honestly, it's I came from trials, you know, so it's a long way from riding a trials bike. Yeah, it's very uh, different. And, and if I had any potential, I wasn't that keen on pursuing it. But yeah, you know, what I when I look at obviously now with social media, what I and when I see what people say on social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's often well intentioned uh, and they've thought about it, but often very misguided. Yeah. You know, and you'll have seen that as well. You know? Well,
0: and I, I'm probably as guilty as any armchair fan of that because you're always trying to make intelligence out of grains of salt, you know, like tiny sure. little bits and put a picture together and, and use what you've got there to try and draw a conclusion. But that's where it's super good to have a chat like this where you can yeah. ask someone who. Who has a brain and and was there to to put some some information well, I, behind it?
1: I've been super lucky, you know. I'm one of the few non-French people to have been let into the the heart of the thing. You know? Possibly
0: the only per- non-French person. Only, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, you know, it's, it hasn't always been easy for me, you know, to be a, no. a roast beef in that environment. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it's nice to share mm. my vision of it with you great opportunity
0: and so what the one thing i always like to end this podcast with is uh to give people the opportunity to explain what it is they actually do and to sell their their thing a little (laughs) bit and you have your in non-covid times your your trail rides that you do as well with navigation and so on so
1: yeah so i mean what what tends to happen is i look at the year coming up see what rallies i'm going to work on i mean Last year, I should have worked on the the, the Silkway, the Rally du Maroc, Andalusia, Dakar, and another a classic car rally, bizarrely, um, called the Rally de Princesse, which is for women with classic cars. Uh, and obviously, a lot of that didn't happen. And, and then once I've got that planning, I, I set up a, about 10 or 12 dates through the year in France on a load of different locations, with roadbooks uh-huh. um, and uh, I love roadbooks you know? and I think and you, you probably love road books as well I think absolutely yeah and, and unless you've ridden with a road book, it's very hard to understand why they're they're so appealing you know and and, and they're not for everybody you know what I mean they're not uh, you have to think it's quite Mentally exhausting to use a road book, you know. Um, but in the, the advantage in France of using a road book is it's a little bit like, did you ever do the rally, the Sardinia rally? No, I never have, no. Okay, well, all rally raid riders, all the top ones, love mm-hmm. the rally Sardinia so because it was, you know, a note every 300 meters, you
0: know. And I, so I've done Serres twice and it, it, it was yeah, exactly the same, you know. There's yeah. Sometimes your notes are, are 50 meters apart and it's intense, and it. but it, it's a. Mu- I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to describe it or why it's
1: good, but it's very good. It's very good. I don't know why either. It's like a treasure. It just adds a whole different dimension to it. And then the advantage for me, why, I've, you know, I mean, honestly, it takes, you wouldn't believe the time it takes to make a book. No, especially in France. I can imagine especially it. Especially in France. But the advantage for me is a, I love it. And I love making the road books. I love um, going off on my own and, and, uh, and, mm-hmm. and doing that. And, um, And then I, you know, I love the, you know, go, wow, I came to this note and I couldn't work it out. And then I went down there and I came, you know, and then all that talk in the evening about where they got lost, which inevitably everybody does. Uh, And of course, the other thing, it's very well adapted to what I'm trying to do, because we're in France. It's different to riding in the UK, but basically, you know, it's still the same problematic. You're you're riding. It's not a race. uh, There's people on the tracks. It takes the emphasis just off the speed of it. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it's really well suited. If somebody wants to ride flat out, um, they're probably not going to want a road book anyway. You know. Yeah. So that's great. Although, oh, he's running road books. I don't want to go with him, and that suits me fine. You know. But if somebody wants to get the head round it, and, and it's the difference is I think with i I've never wanted to run trips where people follow each other behind. You know, for me that's just no discovery. Mm-hmm. I know lots of people like it, but, you know, when you're riding a road book, although you know somebody's been through and made that road, but it has that aspect of you discovering it on your own for the first time, you know, which is just what I love about off-road riding. You can you can stop. You come to an amazing place, and there's a lot of amazing places in France on your own road, book, you can stop and take a photo.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know you can go, or you can just stop and have a drink. But if you're riding following other people, you can't stop. You mm-hmm. can stop when they stop.
2: You know, mm-hmm.
1: and and I—that's really, you know, I, and it responsible. I don't know if this is an English word. It makes the rider responsible for their own. Yeah, trip. enjoying. You know, I, yeah, I don't, I don't want to babysit people. You know, I mean? yeah. I want to give you the road book, and obviously there's safety there, and I have an opener, and I sweep, and we know where you are. I put a tracker on your telephone, so if you get really lost, I can come find you. <laughs> uh, but whilst you're reading that road book with usually how it works on my trips that you ride in twos or threes something like that mm-hmm. but you're, you're 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 in your own adventure it's not a it's for me it's the difference you know if you go to a theme park yeah the adventure decided for you yeah you know, and this is a little bit more away from it
0: yeah sounds so fantastic have
1: to do. and um it's not for everybody, and I'm probably not for everybody either. <laughs> we must be nearly it. half French by now. So. Well, funny enough, I'm just uh, yesterday I went for my to my um, interview to have French passport. Wow! So, and incredible. where they and I, I'm married to a French woman, so they wheeled me in and they asked me a lot of questions, and then they wheeled me out and asked her the same questions just to check. So, so yeah, it's a country I love. And I think the other thing is I have a, you know, French, France, nothing, you know, they're only a few miles apart, but culturally it's very different. I understand very well what's possible to do in France mm-hmm. in terms of off-road riding and what isn't possible. Yeah. And uh, so, which is why I've been able to do it for 30 years, I suppose. Now, so.
0: And so, uh, and so what's your website? Where can people find out about your...
1: So if they go on to uh, www.sport-adventure.com, they'll find the dates. Happily, I think there must be a big pent-up demand for going riding because they're, they're nicely filling up. Fantastic. Uh, and and I'm happy and lucky. The other thing is because I have 16 people running around and me and an opener and a bloke in a van, I can't take 16 people who've never seen a robot before it in their lives is obviously going to be a, a chaotic experience. <laughs> so where I'm lucky is I have a, you know, I think I worked it out last year, 87% repeat business. So fantastic. in any one trip, there's only about three or four people have never been with me before. Mm-hmm. And, um, and my clients look after my new clients. So that's, that's a relief for me. <laughs> well, it sounds
0: like a fantastic way for people to learn to, to, and we get, I get asked this question all the time about learning road books and yeah, it sounds like a fantastic way to do it without the, like you say, the pressure of also knowing that you have to keep up with an event and learn on the fly and and so on. Yeah. So, And you can, I suppose, there's a nice uh, situation where you can ask questions and talk about those notes in the evening in a way that maybe you can't do at a race.
1: Well, you can take your time to understand where you went wrong. You can go back, you know, what I mean? mm-hmm. it's in a race, you know, you, you go in a, in a robot unfortunately in a robot race, maybe not the Dakar, but a lot of them, I'd say about you know sixty percent are just following somebody else. You know what I
0: mean? Yeah, I, I would. My experience of Dakar, that's also still the
1: same. <laughs> sure, I think the same. You know, once a few bikes have been through a sand, you yeah. pretty much know it. Whereas the advantage for me is I don't have you know basically, you know, have, has to navigate.
0: Well, there's no, there's probably no tracks on the ground in France after ten bikes have been through. So, no. Yeah.
1: Well, I I, 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 do my Hiawatha impersonation and sometimes it go that doesn't look like 10 bikes, you know, so yeah. I'll wait, you know, but yeah, basically you're navigating.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's um, a pleasure.
1: Thank you for asking me. I really enjoyed it. I hope yeah. we haven't bored people today. <laughs> Hopefully not. Anyway, we have got a some huge, huge subject. We could talk for hours. Yeah, we could. Yeah,
0: for sure. Well, thank you. A pleasure.